This morning we are going to be beginning in Daniel chapter 5, where we left off in our study in Daniel. And when we get to Daniel 5, Daniel 5 is very much a transitional chapter. And as I've been reading through Daniel 5 on many occasions this week, one of the things I've been struggling with in the preaching of Daniel 5 is what seemingly is a lack of admonitions for us, like as a result of this, then therefore and go do this kind of um, admonishments. And I noticed a lot of it is, is a kind of a, it's a historical narrative here in Daniel 5. And I think to me, what's one of the most seemingly striking realities in all of Daniel 5 is the transitional nature of it, the fulfillment of what God said was going to happen when he gave his dream to Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2. And so some of you may recall that, that vision in chapter 2. And so chapter 5 takes us from the, uh, the, the end of the head of gold era, number 1 right here, and it transitions us over here to the number two era of the Medes and the Persians, which in the vision, the dream of chapter two was the chest and arms of silver. And so this is the transition that we're seeing in Daniel 5. And to no one's surprise, or at least it shouldn't be a surprise, that um, that really strong testimony that Nebuchadnezzar was giving at the end of chapter 4, all through chapter 4, I might add. Um, here some 20 plus years following his death, those, that testimony, that strong testimony and affirmation that there's no God like Yahweh has seemingly all but been forgotten. Seems to have fallen on deaf ears on at least this administration led by Belshazzar. Now, historically, one of the things that we know is that there were other kings along the way between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Uh, the Word of God here in Daniel chapter 5 doesn't um, give us that information, and so I took that as a, it's not all that necessary or maybe, maybe needed as importantly as some other things might be. And... Um, and so I'm not going to try to give a rendition of all the different kings that went from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. And they were, there were uh, several, but they were few in, in years and length of days. There was a lot of intrigue and executions and sons and the risings of other sons. So here we have in chapter 5 the very end of the head of gold, the end of the Babylonian Error. And, and one of the interesting things, not only was Nebuchadnezzar's testimony seemingly forgotten, the great prophet Daniel, too, himself, seems to have been all but forgotten in this new Babylonian administration. And so one of the uh, things we see as the curtain is closing on Babylon here in chapter 5 is, is, is the reality um, that the testimony of God from one generation to the next can so easily be forgotten. Reminds me of in Egypt when a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. And so while there were some things that were done that were obviously very spectacular in nature, and it would seem 
that it would be of such a nature that how could, anybody, how could the next king have forgotten Daniel and his God? Or It would almost seem impossible to us to give consideration to that. But one of the things we see throughout the entire testimony of the scriptures is that it's never the miraculous that leads someone to a conversion and belief in God. Just read the New Testament. Jesus did so many miracles, but yet they said, crucify him. So if it was the miraculous that was going to draw hearts to a saving knowledge in God, we would have definitely seen that in the New Testament. So it's not a surprise that here in Daniel chapter 5, we see that Daniel, the great prophet of God, has been all but forgotten. And in this transition from the head of gold to the chest and arms of silver, again, I think the most significant thing is how God providentially is rising Daniel back up for such a time as this. In this time, Daniel is now an old man. And out of obscurity, and God is going to be placing him back into a central position as a, as a central figurehead for the new administration over here with the Medes and the Persians under King Cyrus. And when we get to chapter 6, we're going to see that Daniel is one of three of the primary um, counselors uh, for King Cyrus. And, um, and then amongst those three uh, commissioners that get established there, Daniel starts elevating himself and outworking the others, and God continues to elevate Daniel for such a time as this. So again, in my opinion, this is the most significant aspect of all of Daniel chapter 5, is how God, in the fullness of his time, because who is it that makes history? And I think this is one of the important reminders that we see here in chapter 5, is that Lord Yahweh is the maker, not only of noses, but the fulfiller of history. And he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And though Daniel was seemingly fall, has fallen into somewhat of obscurity, Belshazzar has to, the queen mother has to come in. We're going to see next week when we get to the end of the chapter, and she's going to have to say, hey, you know, you've got somebody in your kingdom that could help you out with this. You know that, right? So almost from obscurity, God is going to be elevating Daniel, the old man now, back into a position of prominence. Now, by way of reference with Daniel, <clears throat> remember when he was taken into Babylonian captivity, we estimated and most people estimate that he probably was brought in somewhere around the age of 11 to 14 years of age, which would have been somewhere around that 612 BC. Again, we're, we, we have to kind of use some, you know, we don't, can't just say it's exactly the day that he went in, but there's some approximations. And so he was approximately 11 to 14 years of age. And, and in chapter 5, we see the ending of the um, head of gold and the beginning of the Medes and the Persians, which we know historically took place around 539 B.C. So if we do the math, Daniel probably, in that he got to Babylon when he was around 11 to 14 years of age, you do the math from whenever Babylon takes its fall and the Medes and Persians take over. Daniel's probably somewhere around 84 to 87 years old. 
And I think the, the encouraging thing here is that we see God getting a hold of an 84 to 87 year old man and saying, I still have purpose and plan for your life. Towards the end of your days, I'm going to do some of the greatest things through you that I've done yet. I guess as they sometimes say, the best is yet to come. So don't ever give up on thinking that, well, I'm, for some of you senior saints, so I'm, I'm kind of twilighting out here. Listen, God wants to use your twilight years to be the best of your years. And in the church age, one of the things we know very definitively is that he's wanting to make disciples within the church. And who better to be making disciples of younger people within the church than the gray head that has lived life? like Daniel, has seen the providential hand of God and care of God and purpose of God fulfilled through trials and hardships. Who better to be passing along the knowledge of the one true living God to the next generation than the gray head? So the, one of the encouragements I hope that many can get here uh, from this is that it, age, age matters not when it comes to God's usage of you within his kingdom purposes. And today he's wanting to make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey Christ in all things. So if you're here this morning and you've got gray head and you're thinking, what am I doing with my life? Look around, you might find that there are some young folks in this congregation and you might need to just actually spend a, make a little effort to get to know one or two of them. And then you might even say, hey, would you like to grab some coffee? Tell me. Is there anything I could be praying about for you? Is there any way that I could be of an encouragement to you? Because, you know, hey, I'm on my, I'm on my, my, my grandkids or maybe even my great-grandkids. You're struggling with some just getting them through diapers. I've, I've been there, done that. If I can be of help, I can pass some knowledge along to you. Oh, and just know, it's going to get better. Sometimes just the encouraging word is all that's needed, right? Have any, any of you been there just needing the encouraging word? When you got four of them wrapped around your ankles and you're thinking it's never going to end? Anybody there right now? <laughs> yeah. So Daniel, coming out of obscurity in his old age, and God saying, I'm not finished with you yet. The best is yet to come. Now, look at chapter 5, verse 1, and let's start there together. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now you, you may know this but for years critics attempted to discredit the prophecy of Daniel and its accuracy in a multitude of ways one of which is found here in chapter 5 verse 1. And for years critics of the word of God said very loudly and proudly that Daniel and his history and, and thus his prophecies were errant because there was no historical Belshazzar who ruled over the Babylonian kingdom as Daniel has here claimed. Obviously Daniel's writing Belshazzar the king held a great feast and if there was no Belshazzar recorded in history as being king of Babylon one might say that there's some credence to that. However in 1854, an archaeologist by the name of J.G. Taylor. Any, any relation, Taylors? Do you know a J.G. Taylor? Okay, I was just checking. You never know, right? I mean, you got the name. J.G. Taylor excavated a ziggurat. That's how I pronounce that word. 
at Ur. You heard of Ur of the Chaldees? And I practiced this, pronouncing this word, this name, this. And it was called Elugal Galgasissa. Are you impressed? I worked on that for like 10 minutes, Greg. I mean, that's just my Texas tongue. It just doesn't fall, roll off very easy. Elugal Galgasissa translates of the temple of sin complex. Now that's much easier. So in Ur, there was a temple that Nabonidus, who was recognized as the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus, history indicates, was a very religious person, and he was really interested in the moon god, Sin, S-I-N. I'm assuming they would pronounce it in the same fashion, Sin. And he went to Ur, um, of the Chaldeans, so he would he was frequently was gone away from Babylon and was in Ur and was building a temple to the moon god Sin. And there in that complex, that temple complex made to Sin, there were found four identical cuneiform clay cylinders that are now called the Nabonidus cylinders. One of which is housed now at the British Museum that looks something like this. There it is. That's taken from a picture. That picture is taken there in the British Museum. And this is one of those clay cylinders that was unearthed by the archaeologist J.G. Taylor. Thank you, Mr. Taylor, for your time spent. And by the way, this picture was taken at www.britishmuseum.com. You can go there, and there's all kinds of information that you can read upon uh, read read about on this. But on this record, now see these little markings in here. The, the, that actually says something. Okay, now I know that's kind of hard for for me to get my head wrapped around, but there th this is information that's been etched into this clay cylinder, and on this cylinder there is a record from Nabonidus of his eldest son. Belshazzar, who ruled in Babylon as his co-regent, who he placed there in Babylon to serve as king in his stead, since he was a very religious man and desired to go off to Ur and build a temple for the moon god Sin. And while there, in the construction of the temple of, for the moon god Sin, he obviously had somebody, one of his people, uh, however they would etch on these clay cylinders this information and he had and he and he prayed for uh, to the moon god's sin on behalf of Belshazzar that he would do do well and be well while serving in his stead so in 1854 um, all of those books that perhaps filled some library shelves somewhere that articulated that Daniel's prophecy and thus could not be wrong because his history was so wrong took a fatal blow because there was the identification of Nabonidus's son Belshazzar who was serving in Babylon as king. Now There were other issues, we might say, that these critics had. And, um, but in chapter 5, this, this is the main issue. 
And so, once this cylinder was discovered, do you think that the, uh, the critics of the Word of God and thus the prophecy of Daniel and its accuracy uh, ceased and its uh, ferociousness? Well, of course not. That goes without saying. Um, but it was definitely a great find. And one of the things that we've discovered, we meaning the, the plurality, we, those who are interested in biblical archaeology, is that the more people dig, the more they find. And the more they find the more accurate the Word of God is validated. Now, for those of us who, has, who have eyes of faith, we say, well, yeah, of course. And just keep digging, right? Just keep digging. Keep digging. And so whenever the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, that should have put to, to rest uh, perhaps the rest of the critics' voices against the book of Daniel because... The other critics' primary argument against the book of Daniel was its time of dating. And they said that the prophecies that were recorded in the book of Daniel were so accurate that it would be impossible for Daniel to have had that and known that knowledge. And so Daniel was a pseudo-Daniel who wrote after the fact, pretending as if he were the Daniel in the fact, and it really wasn't the Daniel in the fact, it was a Daniel after the fact, and that's how that became so accurate. But when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and they did their carbon dating, because they love carbon dating, when they did their carbon dating on those Dead Sea Scrolls, guess where it placed the time of the writing of the Dead Sea Scrolls? With the original Daniel, not some pseudo-Daniel after the fact. So again, keep digging, because the more that's discovered, the more validity is given to the Word of God, because that's exactly what it is. And Daniel chapter 5 gives us a really good indication of that. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it happened exactly like God said it was going to happen. So listen, if perhaps you're here this morning, and you may find yourself perhaps being a little bit like Belshazzar. I mean, Belshazzar chapter 5, we're going to get here. Belshazzar knew of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar knew of the things that, that Lord Yahweh, Daniel's God, had done on behalf of Daniel and on behalf of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He knew all these things, but for some reason to him, it wasn't so convenient. So perhaps you're here this morning and you too have heard of the God of Daniel and you've heard of the things that he's done because you perhaps read the stories and of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but you're still not fully persuaded that you ought to commit your entire life to that God, let this prove, prove to be an example to you that that's faulty thinking and that today is the day of salvation and that today would be a great day to give your life to the only true God of heaven and earth, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God who rescued them from the fiery furnace, Yea, the God who spoke and galaxies leapt into existence in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? I think that's one of the great testimonies here that we have in Daniel chapter 5. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatsoever he pleases. Amen? Okay, where am I? Man, I'm completely lost. Verse 1. Thank you. 
Let me see. I'm on this. I'm on this ziggurat here. Verse one. There's verse two. Let me get back to verse one. Now, what's interesting here is um, where am I? I've got some notes here. I've got to jump back in here somewhere. Royce, can you get up here and sing for a second? He's like, no, you're on your own. Uh, what do we see here Belshazzar doing? I just found my place. Thank you. Belshazzar the king held a great feast. Okay, so one of the things we know in chapter 5 is dealing with the very end of the Babylonian kingdom. Because by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, um, it's, it says that. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. That same night, Belshazzar the king was slain. So we know we're at the very end. So when we go back to verse 1, knowing that we're at the very end, it's kind of peculiar. Here we got Belshazzar the king, and he's holding a, a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he's drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And so the question becomes, what's Belshazzar doing? History, history has it that uh, the Medes and the Persians had... At the time of this event here in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, there's a chronicle called the Babylonian Chronicle, and it indicates in the Babylonian Chronicle that a couple days prior to the royal banquet that we're talking about here in chapter 5, verse 1, that Cyrus the Persian had defeated the Babylonian army near a place that's called Sipar, that's approximately 50 miles from Babylon. So it would seem that Belshazzar, the king who's holding a great feast, is doing that with the knowledge that his army had went out to defend themselves and perhaps hopefully defeat the Medes and the Persians and that they were not successful in doing so. And so here at this time, he's now holding a banquet while the Medes and Persians have literally surrounded the city and the city is about to undergo a besiegement. And so while that's happening, hey, let's gather the, let's gather the, the nobles together and, and let's have a party. Let's have a celebration. Perhaps it was one of those, let's eat and drink a lot of wine because we're about to die. And so maybe it's easier to die when you're in a drunken stupor than when you're in your full and right mind. Perhaps that is one of the occasions. And in reading a multitude of commentaries, some will go that way. And they will say that what Belshazzar is doing, whenever he gets to verse 2, 3, and 4, and he goes and he gets the elements uh, that were taken from, from Judea, from the temple of Yahweh, the gold and silver cups that they took, and they start drinking from them, that it was somehow a, a show from Belshazzar of, of a, of a um, disregard for the God of the Jews. And that's one of the directions that some commentators will go with that. Others think perhaps that what Belshazzar was doing when he gets to verse 2 and, he, and he's tasting the wine and he gives orders right here to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. So these would have been elements used for worship 
and sacrificed to the only true and living God that were taken away and, and housed in, in Babylon. And so here we got Belshazzar at his great feast for his thousand, drinking wine, saying, hey, let's go now and get those vessels that came from the temple of Jerusalem, and let's drink from those. And some perhaps think that this was Belshazzar's last-ditch hope, almost, if you will, like the, uh, you know, pulling the rabbit's foot out of your pocket. Because perhaps in his greatest moment and hour of need, the recognition that his city has been surrounded by the Medes and the Persians and that his time is drawn short, perhaps then he started thinking about, oh, what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I remember there was a god that showed up in the midst of the fire with them, and, and we brought them out. The records from, from Nebuchadnezzar, they brought them out, and you couldn't even smell the stench of smoke on their clothing. So perhaps this was a last-ditch last effort to kind of stroke the rabbit's foot, pull out the golden goblets and the silver goblets to the God of the Jew, to Lord Yahweh. We, we saw what you did. We heard of what you did in the past. Can you do it for us again now, like right now? We're surrounded, Medes and Persians. So I don't personally know which way to go. I don't know, is it this way? Is it that way? I think it could have perhaps been either way. But I do think whichever way you go, and I, I, if you ask which one am I kind of leaning towards, I tend to lean towards the fact that Belshazzar is pulling out the golden goblet as if pulling the rabbit's foot out of his pocket, and he's hoping and praying that the last-ditch effort tried all things else. Let me try Lord Yahweh, Daniel's God, and see if he can pull my feet out of the fire. That, perhaps, to me, seems to make a connection. And it says that they, in verse 3 and 4, that they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple to the house of the God, which is in Jerusalem. And the king and the nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and notice, and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze. Hey, it's, the, it's Olympic season, right? You'd almost think that this was like a, like a, a sporting event, maybe to see who could drink the most. You know, get the gold, the silver, the bronze. Okay, bad humor. I'm sorry. Um, iron, wood, and stone. So that'd be first place, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. And so seemingly Belshazzar, who knew, who knew of the God of the Jew by extension, there's no question he heard of the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar without question. Without question, he knew of the incident with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Without question. He knew all these things, but what he didn't know was he didn't know God personally. He did not have a personal connection with God. So instead of turning to God, he instead turned to the only thing he knew, perhaps that belonged to that God, vessels taken from his temple, and not knowing how to praise that God, started praising gold and silver and perhaps the things that he was holding in his hands, perhaps trying to rub that rabbit's foot as hard as he could. Because have you ever noticed 
when people are, are in great need and desperation and life is on the line, they oftentimes want to cry out to who? Any God that's out there that will listen to me. And oftentimes the God of the Bible, especially here in America because they grew up underneath this Christian culture and community. And perhaps it seems that this is what Belshazzar is doing as well. He's throwing a Hail Mary. So again, let's not fall prey to the folly of Belshazzar. As I just made mention, if you're here this morning and you know not the Lord Jesus Christ, the one, the God-man sent from heaven, you may have heard of him, you may have known of him, but there's going to come a day because it's been appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Belshazzar's judgment's coming, verse 30. He's about to die, and he's going to face the only true and living God. And so that day is coming for all men and all women. Turn to him today. Again, I will say it. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Turn and follow and believe in Christ, the Savior of all who truly come to him by faith. Amen? Look at verse 5 and 6. I call this the sign. One through four was the scene. Here we've got the sign. It says, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. In verses 1 through 5, the king is what we might say terror-stricken, which I think would, we could all agree very, very easily that if this probably would be a very natural response to seeing what he has just seen. I mean, just out of nowhere, a hand appears uh, opposite you, and it's writing on the plaster of the wall, and the markings are being left. Now, he might have perhaps thought that maybe he had had too much wine, but then when the hand perhaps just continued and the writing on the wall was so obvious that there was nothing else that could be concluded, um, it seems that he went into a complete panic-stricken, terror-stricken place in his life. I think today we just call them panic attacks, right? And I think some people have had it. This might be categorized as maybe the, the, the world's largest panic attack right here and right about now he might have been thinking that the decision he made to use those sacred Judean vessels of gold and silver perhaps was a bad idea I don't know or perhaps he's thinking well hey I was calling out to that God this hand's shown up and perhaps he's just left me a message on the wall and I need to know this message maybe the Hail Mary that I'm throwing even though I'm scared to death I'm over here shaking in my boots but perhaps the Hail Mary that I'm throwing might come to some good fruition. I don't know. And so we're going to see him call in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the wise men, and he's going to start looking for answers as to what does that say on the wall? I need to know. And he was terribly afraid. Now, have any of you ever seen somebody fall under such terror-strickenness? Terror-strickenness. I don't know if that's even a word, but have anybody ever seen that in, in like in live living color? 
You have, I've seen that one time in my life, and it was my good friend Gary Summers. Um, we were just kids in high school, so our circumstances were radically different, right? I mean, like, there was no f- threat or fear of death. No one had surrounded Duncanville High School and, you know, with threat of dismemberment and loss of life. We were simply two kids, probably sophomores in high school, and we discovered that that the, the lunch cafeteria doors, um, that if you just gave them a real good pull, like this, you could pop them open. And somehow we discovered that in popping them open, you could get in there and, uh, and you could get to, the, to where they stored all the ice cream. You Like when you went through for lunch and they had those little freezer things, and you pop the lid and you want, you want an ice cream bar? Yeah. And, you know, and, so, and so we thought that we would get really famous with the varsity guys, and we would start supplying them with ice cream bars before practice. And so, you know, occasionally we made our trip down the hallway and popped the doors and, and took a few ice cream bars, nothing, nothing too bad. I mean, it was, it was pretty minor. It's maybe 10 bars, and we'd go into the locker room, and we're handing them out to the seniors and, like, trying to get on their good side. Like, you guys like us, right? And we're, so we became like the ice cream guys. And then one day... We got there, and we, and we tried to pop the door, and you couldn't pop them. They, they had done figured out somebody, I guess, was popping the doors, and now you could no longer pop the door, and so they kind of had it chained up a little bit differently. And uh, so Gary got a little bit agitated by that, and so and I'm like, bro, don't, don't. He started really trying. I mean, he was, like, working on it super hard, and me being the good guy, I was like, hey, man, don't do that because something might break. But Gary was determined, and so, man, he yanked, and he finally got one of those to pop. And so he's like, come on, man, let's go. So I reluctantly followed him in there. I mean, like, I was very reluctant in going in there. Okay, I'm not kidding. And so he goes in there, and he gets some of the ice cream bar. And then Gary, Gary, Gary did something he shouldn't have done. He crossed a line. I, I admit it, and I even told him so. And he told me basically to shut up, but he didn't care. And... um. I don't even know how to tell you this, really. Um, but, you know, when you go into the lunch cafeteria, at least back in the day, this was back in the 80s when things were really archaic, they had these really archaic um, lemonade um, machines that you get your cup and you just get, you know, if you wanted lemonade to drink that day. And so Gary decided that he would, he would um, do something to the lemonade that he shouldn't have done. And so the next day at school, we're in, the ca- we're in the cafeteria, and we're sitting over there, and, and Gary starts going, look, 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 and, they, and they've got the line shut down at the lemonade place, and people are tasting it and going, there's something off on that lemonade. And so, um, so Gary started getting nervous, and he got up and he left the cafeteria, and I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden, they shut the whole thing down and everything, so I decided good prank so after about five minutes I go out I go down the hall and Gary's there and I go but bro you're busted they they asked me and I had to tell them and he he did this right here I mean in an instant I've never seen anybody break down as fast as I saw Gary Summers break down right there in the hallway his entire body went limp he started shaking like I've never seen a human body shake before just within the within the blink of an eye and um, and so I was telling him, you know, hey, they they sent me to come get you, and I mean, he couldn't even talk. 
So I've seen this kind of panic-strickenness afflict a human body uh, like I think it afflicted Belshazzar here at the handwriting on the wall. Now, the good news, I guess, you know, I told Gary eventually that I was kidding. And, um, and I think he actually went to the office and he called his mommy and she, she got him out of school the rest of the day um, because he was so panic-stricken and terror-filled that he could no longer make it through the rest and the balance of that day. So that's the only time I've seen anybody just within an instant become this panic-stricken as does Belshazzar. But obviously, again, the context way differently I don't even know why I shared that with y'all. It just doesn't even make sense. Like, it's like, okay, so it fit this, the, 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 the knocking knees and all that kind of stuff. But other than that, I really, I'm not certain exactly why I bothered even telling you that. Other than if someone were to say, that can't happen. How could that even happen? See, there's, a, no, it can happen. Maybe you hadn't seen it, but I'm telling you, it can happen. Knees were knocking. Gary. Now, in verses 7 and 9, I'm using the word shortcoming. So, the sign, verses 5 and 6, the handwriting on the wall, to the shortcoming, verse 7 through 9. And that shortcoming is going to come by, the, by means of counsel, worldly wisdom from the king's counselors. Notice verses 7. It says, the king called aloud to bring in the counselors. Have we seen this before? About, this is about the third time we've seen this. In Daniel's writing, bring in the, count, the, the, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. So the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners, again, are all brought before the king for the purpose of reading the handwriting on the wall and to as it says here explain what it means and the reward for doing all of this now get this the reward for doing all of this was a certain and sudden death when the Medes and Persians finally make their way into the city because you would be wearing a purple robe and a gold necklace around your neck you're obviously nobility and one of the first to be killed yeah disemboweled, torn limb from limb. So the, the reward of doing such a thing, having, oh, third rule in the kingdom, which, by the way, if, if Belshazzar was rolling, ruling as a co-regent for his daddy Nabonidus, who was in Ur of Chaldees building a temple for the moon god Sin, that would make Belshazzar correct in saying that you would have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom Again, giving validity to what we talked about earlier in chapter one, in verse 1 of chapter 5. So when Cyrus and his army capture you wearing this reward, um, it's going to be really a hard sell trying to convince them that you're just one of the lowly townspeople. That's going to be a hard sell, which may explain, I don't know, the inability of the king's uh, conjurers and diviners and the, the Chaldeans from wanting to perhaps have a solid answer or perhaps they just truly didn't know which I think is probably the case so when you get to verse 8 it says then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed his face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed 
So here we see again, again, and this is something that we need to let sink in, the inability of man's collected wisdom to understand the things of God. Every time the king was in need of wisdom and discernment, where did he go? He went to the Dr. Phil, the, the Oprah, the Larry King, the Joel Osteen of the day. He went to the source of wisdom that he valued and trusted above all others. Same old song and dance right here. Nothing new. And this whole pile of people that he keeps marching in every time there's a crisis and a need to know something as his father Nebuchadnezzar had done they always march out without any answers the wisdom of the world is foolishness and we see in the book of Daniel on a multitude of occasions that reality and so we're getting to see and be a witness of that again and so as God's people we need to be those who allow this to strike a straight lick within our hearts so that when we, in different circumstances, but when we find ourselves in a place or a circumstance in time of need for wisdom, we don't go looking to the world for answers. Or if a Christian brother or sister comes to me and they're in need of counsel, I don't give them Ben's worldly perspective counsel. I encourage them and take them to the word of God kind of counsel. So no matter what it may be in your time of need, whether it's the last day of your life as it is here with Belshazzar or whatever it may be, we need to be convinced as God's people that God's the only one with answers. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We read it today. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Worldly wisdom. But in all your ways, acknowledge Him... He will make your path straight. So whatever the circumstance may be, self, what does, I need help. I, I need wisdom. I need, I, what would God's word instruct me to do with regard to this circumstance and this situation in my life? I need to take myself to God's word and I need to search and find, is there, is there a word from God that deals with this issue? And so perhaps I'm having a trouble, I have trouble finding that and so I go to Elder Royce and I say, Brother Royce, Here's my situation. Here's my circumstance. Can you help me? And Roy's going to go, oh, you know, let me think about it. No, he's going to say, from God's word, I would give you counsel to, to, to act and do this way. And so my hope is that we learn this principle from the failures of others, which is what we can do when faced with our challenging circumstances, to not look for worldly solutions, but to always be asking ourselves, what would God's word say about and how to do regarding my circumstance. I need a word from God. You need a word from God. Amen. Let's allow that to sink in. Because therein is life. God's word, his way, is life. Now let's finish this up from 10 to 12. I have the word summons. Here we have the summons of the old man Daniel. The queen entered the banquet hall. And by the way, the queen here is probably most likely a reference to Belshazzar's mother. In his wives, his concubines were already in the party drinking with him. So in comes the queen mother, probably um, related, Nabonidus related back to, to, to this queen mother either by marriage 
uh, or some, some way related back to, to Nebuchadnezzar because she's going to make reference to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And she says, because of the words of the king and his nobles, the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. Verse 10. Verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Here we have the queen mother repeating verbatim words that Nebuchadnezzar himself had said regarding Daniel, that there is a man in your kingdom in whom, and this is what Daniel said, we saw back in chapter 4 on, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar said in his testimony on three different occasions regarding Daniel that he had a spirit of the holy gods in him. And so again, the knowledge of Yahweh, Lord Yahweh, of being Daniel's God and the God that Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, even turned to towards the end of his life. The knowledge of that God was made available. And it seems that Daniel's reputation and what Yahweh had allowed him to do for Nebuchadnezzar is once again here paying dividends and will be used by Yahweh for the express purpose of having Daniel elevated in a high-ranking position once Babylon is no more and the Medes and the Persians take over he will be a useful man of God for the Persian king, Cyrus. And so, verse 12, this was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. And which king named Daniel Belteshazzar? Nebuchadnezzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So here we have the summonsing of Daniel, which again, I think, is the turning point. It's the hinge in all of chapter 5, and, the, and one of the main purposes for which Daniel 5 fits so nicely um, here in the book of Daniel. This transitional period from the head of gold to the chest and the arms of silver, the, from the Babylonian kingdom to its fall, to the rise of the Medes and Persians. God brought in a young Daniel here, and he's elevating the old Daniel here. And in comes the man of God. And so, again, as I mentioned early on, we need to be mindful as God's people that we need to stay faithful and true to our doctrinal convictions, our biblical convictions, and that in God's time, in God's time and in His ways, he can and will elevate you for your testimony, your knowledge of who he is and what he did in your life to become known in whatever context he's placed you in. Daniel, we see, wasn't out striving and yearning and pleading to have some position of favor and power. God placed him there at the beginning of Babylon at God's choosing. And we see again God elevating him here again at the end of the of the Babylonian kingdom and the beginning of the Medes and Persians at God's choosing. But Daniel, we're going to see, was faithful. He was faithful as a young man. He's going to be faithful as an old man. So we just need to be faithful. Stand firm, Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil because you never know when God's going to choose to pick you up and to elevate you, whether it's when you're a young person or an old person. But be available. Stay faithful, just like Daniel did. And in God's timing and in his way, 
He will elevate you in just the right time. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing right here with Daniel that I find very encouraging. I don't have to force my way upon anybody. I just need to be ready and faithful for when God chooses to make his move. Amen? So be ready.